Dear congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to two different passages. First of all, we'll read Exodus. It's good to uh, set the commandment that we're looking at today in front of us. Uh, Exodus 20, and we'll read the first six verses. Then we'll turn to Romans chapter 1 and begin reading at verse 16. Let us first hear God's words. It comes to us, Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let us next turn in God's word to Romans in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin reading at verse 16. Romans 1, verse 16, we'll read through 25. Paul here is writing to them and desiring to come to them because he's both a debtor to the uh, Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and the unwise. He's, he's ready to preach the gospel to them at Rome. Why? He says in verse 16, this is God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. The birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word. Let's also hear what we confess regarding the second commandment in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 35. You can find it on page 72 in uh, Psalter. Lord's Day 35. 
question and answer 96 through 98. Question 96. What does God require in the second commandment? Answer, that we in no wise represent God by images, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Question 97. Are images then not at all to be made? Answer, God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they may be represented, yet God forbids to make or have any resemblance of them in order to worship them or to serve God by them. Question 98. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? Answer, no. For we must not pretend to be wiser than God who will have his people taught not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. As far as confession regarding the second commandment from Lord's Day 35. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, imagine an artist forming a gold statue of a king of his country. He has spent many months perfecting it. He used the most expensive gold and polished it and finished it to a spotless shine. And as he unveils the work of this image to the king, which is now supposed to represent him, and be an image of him, he pulls the sheet off it, and all the king can see is this image looked like a dog. It didn't represent him or even really look like him at all. And no matter what they did to the image, the king would still be insulted because he's not a dog. And in anger, he stirred up because of a wrong representation of who he is. Well, dear congregation, the difference between God and any physical creature here on earth, in the sea, or anywhere else, is far far more transcendent than that between a human king and a dog. And so when God commands us in the second commandment not to make images of him, he's not being hard on us. He's not depriving us from anything. He's simply saying, I am God and I am so glorious I am infinitely glorious and you could never represent me so I will spare you of becoming a fool in making an image of me. You see, the law is quite simple. God tells us who he is. And he tells us how he wants us to worship him because he desires this glorious relationship with us. As, as I've been reminding you again and again. I am the Lord, your God. And this is who I am. And I have brought you out of the land of Egypt, 
out of the house of bondage. And just since there is, since there are no other gods, don't even have them in front of me, in front of my face. And worship me. And think of me in the right way. It begins in the first commandment, doesn't it? As we saw last week, that we are called to flee idolatry. Have no other gods besides me. He's an exclusive God who cannot tolerate any other gods in his presence or in his face because he is the only God. And he calls us, as we found in 1 Corinthians 10, not ever to use our liberty to offend or confuse any of the little ones in grace with idols or false religion. And don't ever, he says, use your liberty to confuse an unbeliever by partaking and participating in his idolatry. Flee idolatry, says Paul, and various other places in Scripture. And the second commandment is that which builds on and is so closely related to the first, you can, you can see the promises of curse and the promises of blessing attached to both. As a matter of fact, so close that some, matter of fact, Lutherans in particular, combine both the first and the second commandment. However, there is a distinction. The second commandment focuses more on how we think about God and how we are then to worship God. It's very clear that God is a jealous God and he desires a right knowledge of him and the right worship of himself. You shall not make for yourself the carved image. Any likeness of anything that is heaven above and the earth beneath or the water under the earth nor shall you bow down to them. And we can understand that, can't we? The foolishness of idolatry, the foolishness of taking a carved image, taking a chunk of wood that God has created and given life and carving it, carving ears into it, carving a nose into it, carving hands on it, carving feet on it, and then worshiping it. An image that can't hear, an image that can't see, an image that can't smell, an image that can't touch, an image that can't even walk. Out of the same wood that we would throw in our fireplace and warm our hands over. And you think, that has got to be the most foolish thing someone who is created by God could ever do. And we don't do that. Do we? Or do we? Because it's not necessarily about a wood statue. It's getting to the heart of the matter. It's getting to the heart of what idolatry and the wrong thoughts and the images of God have right in our own heart. As a matter of fact, our hearts are prone to idolatry. And idolatry and making images of God is really a slander, even if it's mental images, it's a slander of God's very character. 
An idolatrous heart assumes that God is someone else than how he reveals himself to be in his word. And as one commentator put, it is the most monstrous of all sins. A God begotten, said one commentator, in the shadows of a fallen heart will naturally be no true likeness of God. As a matter of fact, Psalm 50, we read, You thought, said the Lord to the wicked man, that I was altogether such one as yourself. We cannot imagine a God without imagining something human. Unless we solely take the revelation of God's Word at face value for who God is. Let us beware that we too don't fall into making mental carved images of who God is. Because the very wrong ideas of who God is is really the fountainhead of all idolatry and is idolatry itself. Someone else wrote, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. And that's how we get to the heart of the matter. In order to keep the second commandment and worship God rightly, we must first of all then know God rightly. We must have a high view of who God is and to know Him rightly. That's where I'd like to begin. The second commandment, first of all, requires us to rightly know God. And I want to take us back to Romans chapter 1 here in order to understand that. For Paul here is speaking to the Romans, writing to the Romans, and he's telling them of the foundational importance of knowing God. And how he wants to come and to share this knowledge of God with them. And he says to them in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. Because that's how we get to truly know God and his salvation. And he tells us about how that comes about. And it's in verse 17. For in the righteousness, in it, in the gospel is the righteousness of God. And it's revealed from faith to faith. The gospel reveals a righteous God. It's not always what we think about when we think about the gospel. Oftentimes we think about the gospel and we think about the love of God and the mercy of God. But the very fact of the matter is, in the gospel is the righteousness of God. Because the gospel contains the way of salvation and the way to eternal life and that could only happen if God is righteous and just and holy. But in this gospel, he also says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
The gospel also contains the wrath of God against sinners who continue in their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. Why? Because God is just. He says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. All who have been created in the image of God, all know God. Everyone knows God. Your neighbor, who you think never went to church, knows God. I don't care what religion they are, they know God. That's what the Bible says. Because his invisible attributes are clearly seen. And although they know God in verse 21, what's the difference? They did not glorify God, nor were thankful but became futile in their own thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. They professed to be wise and they became fools and they changed the incorruptible God into the image of corruptible man. That is the offensiveness of false religion and the offensiveness of creating a mental God that is not the triune God. And what does God do? He's just to give them over to their uncleanness because they exchanged the truth of God and who He is for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Wickedness or ungodliness and unrighteousness becomes exceedingly wicked because of the very knowledge that God has given all men about himself and they pretend to be wiser than God and serve false gods or the very creation that God has created or even the imaginations of their own wicked minds. And God leaves them over to the lust of their own wicked hearts. It's vitally, you see that? It's vitally important to rightly know God, says Paul. To rightly know his gospel. To rightly know his character. And what better place would you go than to the law and to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? To rightly know God. Isn't that what we see in the first commandment? Even in the preamble to the law, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore have no other gods beside me. I am an exclusive God. And he reminds us of that again and again and again. Throughout the scriptures, there is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior, Isaiah 45. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 8, the psalmist is declaring the glory of God and he says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You have exclusive glory that no one else can understand and comprehend. It's so transcendent, the heavens cannot even contain it. 
And then he goes on to say, even those fools who think that they can understand God and and make God into an image of their own mind, they don't even know as much as the infants. Because it's out of the infant's lips that you have ordained strength and knowledge and wisdom of the true God. He is exclusive in glory. That's the whole message of the law. And he's exclusive in his loving relationship to his people. I am the Lord, your God. I am committed to you. You know, the love of God isn't how the world defines love. The love of God is a covenant-keeping God. One who is committed. One who is so committed that he will take and he will disciple and he will refine and he will purify his bride until he looks in the image of his bride and sees himself and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the love of God. The love of God doesn't say, oh, you poor soul, you're going through such a difficult time. He's glorified and he loves his son and he wants to see a reflection of his son when he looks at his people. That's the love of God. It's a relational love like a husband has for his wife or a father has for his children. One that's jealous, one that's protective, one that's sacrificial, one that's sanctifying. Isn't that what Paul says is a good marriage? A husband who loves his wife and gives himself wholly for his wife, even to sanctify her and to purify her so that she might be presented to the ultimate bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true love. It's a love that the world doesn't know. The world defines love as some kind of mystical feeling that you really never even had before. And you can't really even define it. Makes you feel warm and fuzzy. But it's a love that comes and it goes and it never lasts. But the love of God is a covenant-keeping, committed love that transforms us and conforms us. That's love. The law reveals that kind of love. The law reveals that God is who he says he is, and he's a jealous God. That doesn't mean somehow that God is tainted with sin. It's not a jealousy um, that is not justified. He's God. And it means that God is filled with a zeal of himself. He's filled with a zeal for his own honor and for his own glory. You can say God is a selfish God and he has a right to be so. Because he's God. And there is none else. And he's jealous of his honor. He's jealous for the devotion and the worship of his people. He's jealous of his sovereign power. He's jealous of his authority. And he can say to us, his redeemed, 
He can say, I have given my best. I've given my only begotten Son to purchase you in order to be your God. And now I want your best in return. It's pretty simple. I am a jealous God. And I'm a just God. I don't wink at sin. As a matter of fact, after giving the law, they saw the mountain smoking and on fire. Hebrews 12 picks up on that. Our God is a consuming fire. He reminds us in the second commandment as well. He punishes to the third and fourth generation of those who hate Him. It's challenging to even say, but dear congregation, I see this time after time in families' lives. An eyewitness of parents who do not follow in the ways of the Lord and walk in the ways of the Lord and do not set God in a high place in their families and their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren slip farther and farther away. One Puritan wrote, I think this could be convicting to us all, ungodly parents are the most deadly enemies their children have. You could probably add to that ungodly pastors, ungodly elders, ungodly deacons, ungodly teachers are the greatest enemies our children have because they portray the wrong idea of who God is. And it's ultimately important to rightly know God to know Him in His glory, to know Him in His love, to know Him in His jealousy, to know Him in His justice, but also to know Him in His mercy. He shows mercy to thousands who love Him and keep His commandments. He's a God who delights in mercy. To know Him, to rightly know Him as a faithful God who keeps His promises. Behold your God. A God who is too great and too glorious to make dumb, infinitely insufficient images of, even in our mind. And even much less to have an uninformed syncretized, unbiblical understanding of who God is in His character. Paul says, I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. I am not ashamed of law. I am not ashamed of the Gospel because in it is the righteousness of God found in Jesus Christ. That's ultimately how we can know God. 
Jesus himself prays that in John 17. Father, he says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that he might also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life. What is it? What is it? Jesus, Jesus is telling us. Do you have, you listening? Jesus tells us what eternal life is. That they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. To rightly know God in Jesus Christ. Through His Holy Spirit who radically transforms our minds. Giving us a desire to do the will of God as He writes that word, that law, and inscribes it upon our hearts. And in our lives, it is to rightly know God and to be known by Him. I think maybe one of the most challenging passages in all of Scripture is Matthew 7, right after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount expresses the blessedness of His people It directs them in the law of God. It's really an exposition of the law of God. And at the end of Matthew 7, he says there are few that find that narrow way to eternal life. But there are many that walk the way, the broad way that leads to destruction. And he reminds us to beware of the false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. And how do you know who's the false prophet? Because you will know them by their fruits, he says. Because when we are known by God and we know God, others will know us by our fruits and how we live our lives. And that comes with a solemn warning. A solemn warning that's probably most directed even at pastors themselves. But I trust also to you. He says this in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Haven't we done this and we done that? Haven't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we done so many wonders in your name? And Jesus will say, I declare, I have never knew you. Depart from me. Dear congregation, do we know God? And are we known by God? There's nothing more important than keeping the second commandment. That's the heart of the matter. Do we know Jesus?
Jesus Christ, the very express image of God. There was a boy in Sunday school, and Sunday school teacher was talking about, I can't have any other images, and the boy pipes up, but isn't there one image we should worship? And the teacher says, well, what do you mean? Well, we are told to worship Christ because he is the perfect image of God. He is. That's why Jesus takes us and reveals himself to us further in Matthew 7. Even after that solemn warning, he says, I am the rock, and he who builds his house upon the rock, it will stand. But he who builds his house on the sand, it will be swept away when the floods come. Build your house. Build your life. Build your hope. Build everything on Jesus. He is the express image of God. And take God seriously. That's why in Matthew 12, when he describes God as a consuming fire, he says, we have not come to this mountain that cannot be touched. We have come to a new mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time to take me seriously, says God. Yes, I am a consuming fire. Adam and Eve found out they could not hide from me. They found out that I do not overlook sin. But they also found that I am a God who delights in mercy. Isn't it ultimately Satan who comes to us and says, does God really say? Or did God really reveal himself that way? Or isn't God more like this and more like that? Isn't that Satan himself? Demonic worship. Manipulating who God is. And when we have an imbalanced view of who God is, we participate in satanic worship. Because our view of God is directly connected to how we worship Him. It requires, the second commandment requires the right worship of God. Obviously, Romans 1 is saying, not after our own imaginations. Because perverted notions about who God is will soon rot out the very foundations of religion. The first step to this vortex of a church being sucked down into all kinds of idolatry is when she surrenders her high view of God and loses the fear of God. When theology 101 is corrupted and we get the wrong answer to the question Who is God and what is God like? And we've fallen into the most deadly heresy that the church could ever embrace. And so our greatest calling as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ for the good of ourselves and for the good of the next generation and the next generation is to have a high view of who God is. And to worship Him in that high view, in spirit 
and in truth. That's what Jesus tells us, doesn't he? As he comes to this woman at the well in John chapter 4, and the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And she wants to challenge him. It's almost like Satan says, Well, is this this how it is? Or is that how it is? Or, or you know, just, just testing. And she says, The Jews say that we have to worship in Jerusalem. Is that the only place? Because our fathers worshipped here on the mountain. And Jesus says to the woman, he doesn't even allow himself to get distracted with the place and the time and everything else. But he says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. It's not about that. You worship what you do not know, and we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that is what the Father is seeking, he says. Such who worship him in spirit and in truth. What does it mean then to worship God in spirit? Well, Jesus tells us to worship him with our whole mind, all of our strength, with everything, our whole heart, is to have a real passion for God. Because where there is no real passion for God, there is no worship in spirit. And to worship Him in truth at the same time. To have a properly informed and directed worship. A worship that is built on truth. Both are necessary for true worship. Spirit without truth will only lead to shallow emotional experiences. And truth without spirit will lead to dry, passionateless, and joyous legalism. We need to worship in spirit and in truth. And the more we know about who God is, and the more our hearts are set on flame by the power of the Spirit showing us who God is for us, it leads to a deep worship in spirit and truth. Jonathan Edwards wrote this and He said, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the emotions of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided that they are affected by nothing but truth. That's experiential worship. Our emotions are heightened because of an awe and an appreciation of the glory and the wonder of who God is. And that appreciation needs to find its foundation in truth. In God's Word. And that's why we even use God's Word itself, truth itself, to show us how to worship Him. I don't have time to go into the regulative principle. Last time I preached through the catechism, I did so. And I set forth before you the regulative principle of worship. But at the end of the day, the regulative principle of worship will not be understood by many. 
But when we focus on God's glory, and we focus on who God is, we would want to ask Him, Lord, how would You have us to worship You? As a matter of fact, the regulative principle of worship, worshiping God according to His Word, how He's told us to, is seriously liberating. It's liberating for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It frees us from the cultural captivity that would take us and suck us down and cause us to have all kinds of worship wars. The culture is always changing and wants to change and change and change and have this kind of worship or that kind of worship. That will hold the people. That will bring all the young people in. That will bring all the outsiders in. And you're changing worship all of the time. No one knows what to expect and it tries to keep up with the latest trends. Stirring on the emotions. You know the story of Dr. David Jeremiah. I used to listen to him when I was in the um, fields many times in the tractor. It was, a, it was on and one time he had the pastors over for a ministerial and, and they were asking him, what, what do you what do you do to get your people into church? Your parking lot's full in the morning, it's full in the evening. You can't, can't imagine how, how you keep people coming to church. What do you do? And he says, well, I preach the word. No, but, but, but what do you do? Do you, do you have concerts and, 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 and uh, plays? or what, what, what do you do to really bring the people in and get, them, get their attention? He says, I preach the word. And they still didn't get it. Now, we really want to know how you get the people in. And he told them the third time, I preached the word. And then they got it. It's the word. It's the truth. I will keep them there. And it's the truth that will give them the joy of the salvation of the Lord. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's liberating. As a matter of fact, it's so liberating that when you have word-centered worship and word-directed worship, it doesn't matter if you're Dutch, it doesn't matter if you're Chinese, it doesn't matter if you're African, it doesn't matter what nationality you are, what background you come from, what age you are, what gender you are, it doesn't matter. You all come to church, and it binds us all together throughout the world. God-centered, gospel-centered worship. gives freedom. Freedom of conscience liberates people's consciences. We would never want to ask members of a church to do anything that would violate their conscience. And so it's truly liberating. Liberating to worship the sovereign king, creator, redeemer, and provider, the one who upholds us in his almighty hand. All he says to us today, 
let me be God. Because I am God. Let me reveal myself to you in my word. Let me reveal myself to you through my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me reveal to you how I want you to worship me. Isn't that what He's done in and through His Son who comes as the truth, a truth that will set us free in the liberty of the Gospel, a truth that will set us free because He's come to fulfill the law. He's come to earn our righteousness so that we might be in glory with Him. He's come to pay the price for People who broke the first commandment and the second commandment. Who have trampled on the very image of God. He has come to pay the price. To be the way, the truth, and the life. Isn't that what he says to his disciples who are wondering... What Jesus is talking about when he's going to ascend to heaven and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's in my Father's house there are many mansions. In his mercy, he shows them what he's doing. And he says, when I come again to receive you to myself, that you can be with me where I am. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to devise any other way, I'll say it as simple as this. If you want to devise any other way to get to the Father, if you want to devise any other way to get to heaven, you want to devise any other way to be saved from anything, it's an accursed idolatry. No one comes to the Father except through me. But without Jesus, there would be no way to God. And God, in His abundant, superabounding grace, and in His love and in His mercy, sets Him before us today as the express image of the Father. And he says, come. Those who have the wrong mental image of me, come as you are. Come. Believe me. Trust me. Receive me. Surrender to me. And I will give you the Holy Spirit and he will transform your mind. And he will conform you to my image. So that when the Father looks at you, he will see a reflection of me.
and he will receive you into glory. What a God. Let's rightly know him and rightly worship him because he is blessed forever. Amen.